Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to Lost in Science. We have half an hour of science on your radio, ready to go for you. We've got a pretty big show this week. Chris, what are you bringing to us this week for Lost in Science? I am bringing nothing new, Claire. I am I am talking about a story I talked about last year, but it's an update. I like to follow up things. You know, we talk about I like breaking... that you like to follow up Yeah, things. we talk about breaking science, yeah. breaking research... Let's see where it's going. We want to see it repeated. We want to see it. Replicated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we want to see our control. We want- <laughs> We're going to do an episode one day where we just talk about nothing. That'll be our control episode. And we'll see how that compares. Yeah, yeah. We'll see how that goes with our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so what I'm actually following up on is a story on aphantasia, which is that thing where people uh, report they are unable to visualise images in their mind's eye. Right, of course, yeah. Which might sound weird. People who can visualise might sound that's really weird. But Mm -hmm. think what it's like if you... You're not able to do that. If you have aphantasia, which is what it's called, then how much weird must it sound when people are saying they can do it? You must think they're making it up. And Mm. that's what people have thought about for many years. Anyway, we're going to find out what's trying to... What's really going on in their heads there? Manisha, what do you have for us today? Um, So today I will be talking about a couple studies that have come out of different parts of the world, some out of the States and some... don't remember where the other one was from. From (laughs) Um, The story is actually on memory. So if I had read the universities out loud or maybe if I had taken on some of the advice that these researchers have given out to their participants, I would have been able to remember the information a bit better. Um, So today I'm talking about something called the production effect and how to increase our memory and our learning abilities. That sounds very productive, like time well spent. Well, some people have said that there's no evidence for Bigfoot existing in the world, yet he still keeps turning up in stories. I'm going to be talking about the Yeti (laughs) and some recent research that was looking for the Yeti and trying to figure out the the family associations of the Yeti. Where is the Yeti from? Who is it related to? And what, you know, animal family does it belong to? Humans. So Uh, we're talking like Ancestry.com for Yetis. Well, basically we're talking about DNA analysis of Yeti samples from the Himalayas. Folks, don't change that, Doug. We are going to find out. Stuart's going to reveal to us the scientific discovery of the Yeti. I think that's coming up, don't you? Stay tuned. Well, uh, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am doing a bit of an update on a story that we covered last year. Uh, we talked about aphantasia. Do you guys remember what aphantasia is? Yes. From what I remember, it is about not ha- being having like a mind's eye. That's right, yeah. You can't picture things in, in images in your head. Yeah. 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 No, you're, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, it was a thing that was – it was given its name a few years back. Um, researcher Adam Zeman from the University of Exeter, uh, he had studied a man who had lost this ability to, to visualise things in his mind. Uh, and then other people said, hang on, people have that ability? You know, That's they thought right. that, that, yeah. that picture things in your head was just a metaphor. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's when it kind of reached, that's when it's got its name, Aphantasia, um, and that's when it kind of reached the public imagination. Now, it had been known about for a while. Um, in 1883, Sir Francis Galton uh, had kind of identified this as a thing. Um, but yeah, this is it's become now a thing. More and more people have realised that they are aphantasic, if you like, including um, one of Stu's favourite people, Craig Venter. Stu? Oh, oh, Craig Venter. Yeah. Craig. How does he come up with inventions if he can't well, this picture is, things in his head? What he said, he said basically... Blind he, ambition. He, no, he, <laughs> no, he attributed he attributed success to his unusual way of thinking. He just uses concepts without being distracted by mental imagery. He says, it's like having a computer store the information, but you just don't have a screen attached to the computer. Mm. Which actually sounds not very useful. But anyway, he <laughs> finds it useful. How do you, yeah, how do you input? Yeah, never mind. Never yeah. mind. So look, yeah, so this is, it's become, it's now a growing area of research. Now in the story I did last year, there was a bit of speculation about how it might relate to memory, but it seems that it is kind of more complicated than that. Um, there's lots of different kind of experiences of aphantasia, uh, including, you know, what kind of sensory information people have and how it affects them. Um, so the original researcher, Adam Zeman, he has now been in contact with over 10,000 people. Uh, they will be publishing the results of their surveys shortly, but he says that they will um, found some striking associations between imagery, vividness, and occupation, so people's occupation, um, autobiographical memory, which is the aspect we talked about last year, uh, face recognition, and synesthesia is also kind of the, you know, some associations there. Um, and as the sample size grows, they continue to see consistent themes, but also variations. Uh, many people with aphantasia actually dream images, uh, but some of them don't. Some of them have a mind's ear, so they hear things a lot in their head, but um, others don't hear things either. So, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting, an interesting and varied topic. But one thing that makes it really difficult is that it is it's hard to know what's going on in someone else's head. Uh, now, there's I mean, there's no reason to disbelieve people who say that they can't picture images, but we don't know whether they literally are unable to imagine things, images in their head, or whether. One theory is that they can, but they're not they're not aware that they can. Yeah, they can identify it. Yeah, they don't it's a kind of not it's called metacognition, it's knowing about knowing or knowing about mm. your thinking. Um so because one of the things they found is that some people with aphantasia can do complicated mental tasks that you think would require visual skills. So for instance, um rotating objects in their mind, like imagining what an object will will be like, identifying, say, a rotated version of an object. And some of them are able to do that surprisingly well, even though they say they can't do mental imagery. You think, well, that is a visual thing. So how are you doing that? So anyway, um, this is a bit of a tricky, a tricky conundrum. Uh, but some researchers from the University of New South Wales, Rebecca, um, Rebecca Keogh and Joel Pearson, they have tried to remove the subjectivity using a clever visual priming test called binocular rivalry. Hmm. Is that when you've got two pairs of binoculars and you make them fight? <laughs> no. Something like that, Sue. No, it's not actually. It, what it uses, it's like uh, you basically show different images to the left and right eye. And uh, as you can imagine, when you get two different images in, in the, each eye, then it's hard to know what you're looking at. And your brain freaks out. Your brain freaks out. You can't, you can't, it's, it is difficult to identify what you're seeing. It sort of flicks between the two. But you can kind of prime people to see one or the other. Um, so, yeah, they tried this with uh, – they got found 15 people who were self-described as aphantasic. Um, they first of all, they gave them some questionnaires to find out if they really did have aphantasia. Um, we kind of did a bit of a sample of one of these questionnaires in the last story, but I, I thought I would, like, subject you to a different one. This is from the, the Spontaneous Use of Imagery Scale. Uh, it has, like, 12 questions on it you have to rate whether you agree with it. On a scale of five, you agree, and down to one where you don't agree. I'll give you some of these questions. Go. 
If I am looking for new furniture in a store, I always visualize what the furniture would look like in particular places in my home. Agree or disagree? I agree. Maybe three. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I think I'm a three yeah, or a four. I, I think three. It okay. depends. Sometimes I just like looking at furniture, imagining <laughs> what it would look like in my dream Some- home. Sometimes I just get... <laughs> that's, wow, that's quite vivid. Yeah. Sometimes I just get lost in Ikea and I can't find my way out. <laughs> okay, how about, how about this one? Um, if, someone, if someone were to tell me two... Two-digit numbers to add, so like you know, 24 and 31, I would visualise the numbers in order to add them. Oh, yeah, five. Yeah, definitely yeah. Yeah, five. Yeah, five. Yeah. Okay, well, how about this one? This is question 11. When I hear a radio announcer or DJ I've never actually seen, I usually find myself picturing what they might look like. Yep. No. I do. I definitely do. I yeah. definitely do. I think do. I do. Yeah. I do that with yeah, no radio announcers and No one singers. tries to imagine what we look like. A big well, shout out to it. all the listeners <laughs> who, are, who are trying to picture the, the four of us. Yeah. Anyway, so what they did in this, in this study, they, when they kind of identified, they tested them on these things. And they found some interesting results from the, those questionnaires as well, but might get back to that. They essentially showed like either to one eye they would show a, a red circle with horizontal lines. The other eye they would show a green circle with vertical lines. Um, and so they'd see what they could see. Um, what they would do is they would ask people to imagine one of these images. So say, picture the red circle with horizontal lines, and then they would show them the two images. Then with so-called normal people, by asking them to imagine it, then it kind of primes them to see that image. When you show them both at once, they'll see the one that they've been focusing on in their mind. Um, now, what they found with the um, aphantasia people, a lot of them actually had trouble uh, doing this it didn't make much difference to them. And they would say, they would report that, no, I had trouble visualising the image. And then it didn't seem to improve their ability to identify an image. So it kind How of... How do you test that? How do you test? Like, is it just so... They basically have to say what they see. But so, if you're telling them what to see and then you give them two options, how can you be sure that they're not choosing the, the one to well, make Well, you assume they're not lying. Well, well, they're only self-reporting, so how can you really tell well, what Well, that's they're true. Saying? That's true. But I guess you're assuming they're not lying. I, I assume also that I assume also that people who who are reporting are reporting. Okay, you've got the two different images, and the ones who are primed are saying, "Yes, I saw that image," and the ones who are primed and can't picture it in their head are reporting accurately what the other image is. So their brain's not making any decision for them. They're just saying, "Oh yeah, no, I saw a blue thing with." Green stripes or something like but that. It, or I saw both of the images together. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Are you seeing both? Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing, yeah. Anyway, but what was interesting, on the on the questionnaires that they went through, they, yeah, so they, they basically reported they weren't bad at visualising things. But they did actually, a lot of them reported they scored well on spatial imagery. Um, so this kind of suggests that essentially there's something in the brain that is separating identifying objects and picturing an actual object in your brain with, with um, the ability to picture it position in space and there's like different pathways and we know that there are kind of different brain pathways that process vision in different ways so it's just that it's something to do with those vision pathways that's being that's being marked up the identifying objects gets a lot more complicated it goes up into the frontal cortex and all this kind of decision making stuff so that's kind of a more complicated pathway so look it is an interesting thing um and so we're still finding out how the brain works it does suggest this study suggests it is to do with the, the visual processing rather than they're just not aware that they're doing it um and uh, look, we don't know what this means. And, you know, it may mean that they have other ways of processing information, like um, Craig Venter claims it's a, an advantage for him. Um, there's also some speculation that may be less susceptible to uh, some disorders that might involve overactive 
visual imagery, things like hallucinations, mm. um, you know, anxiety disorders, uh, addictions, and those kind of things. But look, I wanted to say we'd love to hear from any any listeners who who listen to them, thinking you know they they could be a fantastic. Um, if you are in this category, please email us at lostinsci at gmail and tell us about it. Tell us your story because you know. We're, we, we're talking about this topic, but frankly, I'm having a hard time picturing it in my head. And as I'm sure, no, no, not your head there, Claire. Anyway, get in touch. Do you guys have trouble remembering things at all? Well, I've got my keys oh. to, to get in to get in. today. <laughs> Occasionally, or like, yeah. Or like uh, remembering I used, to, I used to have no problem at all remembering things. I used to look forward to exams because that was an easy really? way than doing, you know, assignments at school <laughs> because You're kidding. I could just remember things really easily. But as I'm getting older, it's not coming back to me as quickly as it used to. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm hopeless. I can't remember things to save my life. I, if I don't write it down, I don't think. I don't oh, think. yeah. I'd, I'd have to learn it by writing it down. But once I'd written it down once, that was cool. Yeah, right. My story today is actually on uh, memory and how you can help yourself uh, to improve your memory. This actually comes from a study out of the University of Waterloo in Canada. And the study in the study, they basically uh, concluded that if you say something out loud and you hear yourself saying it, uh, it'll help you to remember the facts that you're trying to remember or the appointments or whatever you're trying to remember. Uh, the study was done by Noah Foran and his colleagues. And... Um, what they did was study our the lab studies our ability to learn and remember things, and so they really concentrated on this dual action of speaking and then hearing that that talk back. And the researchers have they've found this effect or this phenomenon called the production effect. And basically, in their study, they tested four methods of learning written information. So either you could read it silently, you could have uh, someone else read it to you. Uh, you could read or listen to the recording of yourself reading it, or you could say it out loud in real time. And in their study, they found that 95% of the participants remembered the information the easiest when they read it out themselves in real time. Uh, the researchers suggest that it's this active involvement in, in the information retention that helps us store the information in our long-term memory. Uh, basically, if you make the the object or the words active, you... You're adding something to it, and it just it sinks better into your brain. That's that was the extent of their um, <laughs> of their. It, it kind of makes sense, though. I mean, it if, does, you, if yeah. you like, you know, if you think about it, if you just read something in the paper mm. that someone else has written, you sort of scan over it and go, "Oh yeah, I'll pick up a couple of details," and you might remember a little bit of it. Yeah, but exactly. if you're actually reading something yourself, your brain's going, "That word means this, and that word means this, and that word means this." Yeah, and, and it's like it's like when you're learning a language, you've got to say all the words so that you remember them and that sort of stuff. And, and even making that active association with like vocab, so like yeah. like a fo- um, a word to a image, and mm. just to make this a little bit meta, can I just talk about <laughs> the process of writing stories for the radio? I always remember things better after I write the story and then talk about it, yeah. And then I'm explaining it later to people. Yeah, what makes I it talked much about easier. on the radio. Mm-hmm. It's um, it sticks in my memory a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically the um, the researchers say that when we add this active measure or the production element to the the word. Uh, we and we create something with it. it. It's it makes it more distinct in our long term memory, and it makes it easier for us to recall that information later. So this could also be true with if you um, write or if you draw out the information as well. So if you wanted to improve what you needed to remember, those were two 
sort of good ways of remembering that. Um, this, uh, the study is actually also related to another study that I read earlier last week. Um, and the researchers from Prin- the, it was from researchers in Princeton and the University of Col- California. And basically the study was looking at how um, students in university lectures, like how they fare retaining the information out of lectures because using our laptops has become so much more popular in lecture halls than writing things out by hand. And the um, researchers found that when you actually write your notes out by hand, or if you're listening to a lecture and you write out the notes by hand, uh, you retain the information better, but you also understand the information better. So you have a better conceptual basis of what's going on than if you're just typing out the the notes verbatim. That's pretty cool, too. They actually... I've actually, yeah, I've actually told my students don't use the laptop. You should write it out by hand, partly because... When you do an exam, which I love, you've got to write it out by hand. You can't take your laptop into the exam, so yep. you've got to write it out. You've got to write it out in the exam, so you might as well have written it out at least once yeah. before. That would be a useful thing to have done, and yeah. preferably practice writing legibly as well. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. This definitely resonated with me as well from uni exams. I remember I like I need to write it out, and I also need a color code because otherwise I just won't remember like key terms and things like that. So in my head, I can actually see the color code coded sheet and so I think that really definitely helps me if I type it out I definitely won't retain any information um, but I will go through a couple of the experiments that um, Pam Mueller and Daniel Oppenheimer did so these were the um, researchers from Princeton and the uh, University of California um, they did two kind of cool studies um, and in the first study, the students were shown TED Talk videos, and they were asked to record the information. And the students were divided into two groups, those taking notes by hand and then those taking notes on their laptop. Uh, so after the TED Talk was over, 30 minutes after it was over, the participants were asked questions about the videos that they watched. And um, they, found, they were asked questions on either factual recall questions, so questions directly related to the content of the videos, or um, some conceptual and um, application-based questions, which were uh, questions using the information, but in sort of a broader uh, applicable context. And in the experiment, they found that uh, both groups, after half an hour, both groups did okay answering the factual recall. So the students had a pretty good short-term retention of the information, but the, um, the ones that wrote by hand were actually much better at the conceptual application questions. Researchers put this down to the um, actual the content that was recorded. So those that wrote by hand, they actually wrote less, but they explained the content better. So they were able to remove the key terms and the key ideas from what the lecturer was saying um, and write that down and capture those inf- um, those ideas better. Whereas the ones um, or the ones that were typing just sort of mindlessly typed verbatim what the lecturer was saying. So they had more, and they had this transcript-like um, document, but it was it was less useful to them. In their second experiment, Mueller and Oppenheimer wanted to test if this was actually the case, if it was because it was this mindless typing. And so they instructed the students not to type verbatim, to take shorthand and to, to think about what they were typing. And in that, in that study, they found the same thing again. The ones that wrote by hand were much better at the conceptual-based questions. Um, so in, in a way, uh, Mueller and Oppenheimer found the same thing that Foreign and his colleagues found, that basically you, you can process information a lot better if you do something active with that information. So yeah, those that speak their information out loud retain it better um, than those just that just read it or hear the information. And those that write information by hand have a better grasp of the content than those that use their laptops. Yeah, so I guess that's my advice to our listeners. If you have to remember something, try to take note. Time. 
Many legends from all around the world, and you guys have probably heard of these kind of stories about ape-like humans or potentially human-like apes. We don't really know. Big, that are, big feet. Big feet. Big foots. Big foots. Big foots. <laughs> but basically, these things are unknown to science. We don't. We don't really know what they are. But there's stories about them all over the world. They, they fascinate me. I. I they, they don't. This makes sense that there would be these hidden giant apes all over the world. Yeah. Why do people all over the world see them? I mean, what's going on in our heads that we're imagining these giant hairy things? Maybe you're scared Par- paradoilia. When you're in the woods. What did you call it? Paradoilia. But why do we paradoilia is where you like see something you, you mistake for something else. Yeah. But why why are we mistaking things for the big hairy apes? But like look at where they are. They're like in the middle of the mountains or the middle of the woods. I'd be freaked out if there's, I was There's by all sorts of weird or... things running around. Yeah. No, um, but, but they are it's but just they very are specific. That and, and black cats. Yeah. You know, it's always, yeah. you know, these, these kind of black cats are unlikely real. things. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> black panthers, you know, the big black cats. Black cats are real. I have seen yeah, a black yeah, cat. Yeah, no, it's, it's, true, true. it's true. Wow. It's true. Wow. I've learned something today. Mm. Um, but people do see them everywhere. So there's, there's Sasquatch or Bigfoot in the northern parts of North America. There's something called the skunk ape. In the southern oh, in Florida, states yep, yep. of the United States, especially I've never in Florida. Heard of this before. So the skunk, skunk ape really stinks, um, huh, and huh. Someone, someone's got what they claim is photos of the skunk ape from Florida from uh, <laughs> 2002. Um, there's even the Yeren from the mountains of China, yeah, uh, and the Australian Yowie. That's just a few, but there's actually dozens of different uh, ones the, from the all Alamas over the world. In, in Russia, there's the Orang Pedek in. Um, in Indonesia or yeah. Malaysia, yeah, all, yeah, all over the world. I, I, I read it. I read up my <laughs> he's, he's got his. He's got his big foots. You aren't even on Google. You're just, <laughs> just, no, just off the top of your head. I do like me a bit of cryptozoology. You know, <laughs> we, we all we all love a bit of cryptozoology. Um, but the most famous of all, I think, is the legendary abominable snowman. Uh, or the Yeti from the Himalayas, which has been present for centuries in the folklore of Nepal in particular. Um, and stories of a human-like hairy beast roaming the Himalayas are backed up by supposed samples of the creature's hair, teeth, and bones. Really? Yeah. They've, they've been kept safe in monasteries in various places for years, these samples of... Yeti tissue, along with wow. all those, along with all those like fingers of Christ and that sort of stuff. Those those monasteries, the, they, you, you know, they've got to be fake yeah. because there's more than ten of them. Yeah, but <laughs> um, so scientists recently took those samples and did what all good zoologists would do: they analysed the DNA and compared oh, it to the DNA of other animals from the region, just to find out for sure what <laughs> it was. So. Uh, they concentrated on the mitochondrial DNA, which mm. is the DNA found in cell mitochondria, which is separate to nuclear DNA, uh, and it's passed down through the maternal line of animals. So it comes from the mother, and you've got the same mitochondrial DNA as your mother, and that's how it gets passed on. Um, so mitochondrial DNA is mostly used for studies to establish the relationship of species to other species. Mm-hmm. And also to estimate how long ago they diverged from a common ancestor. So they're actually doing a survey of of all these animals in the Himalayan area. Um, So 
When they were testing the tissue samples of the apparent yetis, uh, they revealed their relationship to other creatures in the area in s- such a close relationship to other creatures in the area that basically they're identical to bears. Oh. So eight of the nine samples of yetis uh, that they tested turned out to contain DNA of bear species native to the Himalaya region, except one which was something completely different. <gasps> it was a dog. <laughs> So the, the eight of nine were bears and was the ninth one was a was dog. It, was there at least a dog standing on two legs? Like. <laughs> I don't think they can tell that from the DNA. Damn. Yeah. Um, it may have been a trained dog. We don't We don't know for sure. But is, is this perhaps indicating that there are more bears or there are things we don't know about the bears that's making mm. that's going on there? Like what's Well, there, there's, there, they definitely are bears in the Himalayas. Yep. Um, what they did, um, they published their results in the Proceedings of Royal Society B, uh, they also analysed the mitochondrial DNA of several other species in the area, which is how they know the samples are really from bears. Um, but they sequenced the mitochondrial DNA of the Himalayan black bear and the Himalayan brown bear, which is the first time that's ever been done. So that, they're actually doing, you know, good proper science. Mm. They weren't just hunting for yetis and mm-hmm. and you know knocking on the doors of monasteries asking for samples. Um, but they also discovered that the Himalayan brown bear is genetically quite distinct and different from the nearby Tibetan brown bear. So there's Himalayan brown bear and the Tibetan brown bear are two subspecies of brown bear. But the Himalayan one is way different to the Tibetan one, which they didn't didn't realise. Because subspecies uh, are usually a lot more closely related and they... Well, they basically think that that means that they've been separated. The populations have been separated for a lot longer than they thought previously. Mm. So that that's an interesting finding that they had. Um, their next step is to analyse the nuclear DNA of the Himalayan bear species to find out whether the males and females have different levels of interaction with other populations because they suspect that because the male bears have a much larger territorial range than the females, they might be mixing up their... Uh, mixing up their DNA with other populations and interbreeding. So they might have a higher genetic variation in the male bears than in the female bears. Um, but they're also looking for a potential hybrid between polar bears and brown bears. Hey, and what's the polar bear doing in the Himalayas? Well, they, they don't me? know, but they've got, they've got some genetic information from other samples not from this study but from earlier studies where they've got these samples of bear tissue and they don't match the brown bear very closely and they don't match the polar bear very closely but they're somewhere in between so what they're looking for is a um are they looking for the abominable snowman basically they are (laughs) looking for the abominable snowman um so but they think that living in the in the himalayas and maybe down into the mountains in india and bhutan there might be this hybrid bear that hasn't been seen before and never been actually sighted either. So I don't really know what it would look like because a polar bear is quite... A big, hairy man. A big, hairy man. But presumably by, by hybrid, you mean like hybrid from way back. It's not like a polar bear. No, no, no. Like, the... Yeah, the, like a, 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 a current species that's yeah. still alive okay. that was originally hybridized from a common ancestor. So it is cryptozoology. There is like a hidden species out there. There, there actually may be a wow. hidden species actually, out there. I'm happy with that. And perhaps this hybrid creature could still explain the mystery of the Yeti. Or perhaps the story doesn't bear closer examination. 
That's it for another episode of Lost in Science this week. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com or on Twitter, Facebook, or just tune in next week when once again we get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.